So it's been a long time since I've been on the Prairie Campus. Uh, around 50 years ago, I was here with my parents for a Canadian Mennonite Brethren denominational conference. And uh, myself and my younger brother, we were some of the few children that were here for this conference. This is old school now, we're going, these, you know, it's basically just pastors that come to those conferences today. Back then, farmers would show up, which is what our family, that's from my background. But my younger brother and I, we basically had three hills to ourselves, because all the old people, they were meeting and making all the important decisions, and my, our parents just kind of turned us loose. I, as I recall, I don't remember much, but I think we got in trouble on a few occasions uh, for disrupting some meetings. Uh, so it, that, that's my background. For all those students that sometimes create a few challenges, you know, I have a heart for you because that's the kind of uh, young person that I tended to be. But I'm not here to walk down memory lane. Uh, I am actually here to recruit uh, some pastoral interns for Willingdon Church. I've started a new role there as pastor for theological education. And probably most of you know nothing about Willingdon Church. It's, uh, for Canadian standards, it's a quite a large church in uh, Burnaby, British Columbia, right on the edge of Vancouver. Um, we have three services on Sunday with around 3,500 folks or so that show up. Uh, we have 10 uh, international language ministry groups that uh, we have live translation on Sunday mornings for those services, and about 75 different nationalities that are represented in the church. So if you want an intercultural experience and you want to be mentored by a group, a, a, a pastoral team that is excited to work with interns, as am I. In fact, as I finished up my time at Columbia, I have to be honest, I was tired of the administration. I was tired of some of those elements that, that Mark does so incredibly well here at Prairie. And, and I, I felt I wanted to get back to what God had, had originally called me, which is to teach the Bible and to mentor and disciple young leaders. And so that's my primary role, and I would love to work with you. And if you're interested, come talk to me at lunch or grab me or check out our website. We've got information on there too. So that's the ad. I'll, I'll finish with that now, and we're going to move to our text for today. And um, at Willingdon, when we read the Word of God, we like to stand. So I invite you to stand with me, and uh, I'm going to read from Luke chapter 9. And I'm starting with the text, and as I get into our message today, I'll explain a little bit more about this just prior to the transfiguration story, because I think it's critically important for understanding the transfiguration. So I'm starting in verse 23. Then Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet to lose or to forfeit their very self, their very soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. 
And then, eight days after Jesus said these words, something incredible happens. The transfiguration of Jesus. We continue. Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, along with, uh, sorry, in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure. Uh, I've lost myself. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring into fulfillment in Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As these men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. The word of the, God, the, word of the Lord is spoken. You may be seated. You guys in the back, I told you I was going to forget uh, to, to play around with uh, that uh, PowerPoint. So you just kind of run it along as we go here, because I know I'm going to forget again. Um, the Transfiguration story. Have you ever really read this story closely? When I was in seminary, way back in the 1980s, I wrote a 15-page Greek exegesis paper dealing with this story. I thought I had mined its depths. And then I went to Botswana to work with African spiritual churches, and I received a whole new education. The story of the transfiguration of Jesus became one of my favorite gospel stories on account of what I learned there. Now, these churches worship in African ways, with lots of prayer, singing, dance, and prophecy. And I could easily spend hours telling you of the amazing things that we experienced during our years there, but we don't have time today. But I do want to tell you why this story is so important in an African context and I also believe it's incredibly important in a Canadian context. For most Africans, a person's deceased relatives, what are known as their ancestors, are still very important figures. People believe their ancestors continue to influence events in their lives. If an ancestral spirit appears in a dream or a vision, you better pay attention or there will be consequences. They are powerful spiritual figures to be respected, feared, and obeyed. Prayers are offered to them, and sacrifices are conducted in order to stay within their good graces. And this belief is incredibly difficult to eliminate or to dismiss even when people become Christians. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's interesting, 
But what does that have to do with me here in Canada? Well, we may not depend upon our ancestors or pray to our ancestors to guide us, but many of us believe that our success in life is dependent upon money, future careers, media, sports, friends, or some other idol that we have created. Now, the transfiguration story meets those beliefs head on. So let me go back to Botswana for a moment. While there, I had many conversations around the topic of ancestors and their power to control one's life. One time, a pastor of one of these churches asked me directly, can the dead speak with the living? Well, being trained in a Western context, I answered, well, of course not. And his response was, with a smile on his face, well, what about Jesus? He spoke with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Aren't we supposed to follow Jesus' example? Hmm, what could I say to that? And so I went back to study this story once again. I had my 15-page exegetical paper. I had read the commentaries and studied the academic papers, but no Western scholars seriously considered the implications of two dead guys speaking with Jesus. So let's look at this story together. Jesus went up on a mountain to pray with Peter, James, and John. And while on the mountain, his appearance was transfigured. It was changed. Kaboom, right? His face changed. His clothes become as bright as a flash of lightning. And as if that wasn't enough, we discover that Moses and Elijah, in glorious splendor, appeared with him. Now, if we really just stop for a moment, you got to look at this and go, this is a crazy story. I mean, it's really out of our experience, I would say, right? These guys have been dead a long time. Elijah for over 800 years. Moses for over 1,200 years. Dead. And it's not just that they were standing there. The text tells us that they were in glorious splendor. What does that mean? They must have shone in some special, incredible way. You know, what were they looking like? Phosphorescent glow sticks or something. I don't know. But it must have been something to see. Can you imagine had you been there? So, what were they talking about? We're told very briefly that Jesus' departure was the subject of their conversation. In Greek, the word is exodus. Considering Moses was there, it makes sense that they talk about exodus, doesn't it? You might remember that during the exodus, God had used Moses to deliver Israel from slavery in Egypt. But this would be a different type of deliverance. Jesus, by his exodus, his death, resurrection, and ascension, would deliver humanity from bondage to sin and to evil. Now, another question we could ask is, why are Moses and Elijah important? Like, why were they there? What's their significance in this story? Now, there are many plausible reasons they are key representatives of the Old Testament law and prophets. Both of them experienced unique, one-of-a-kind deaths, 
Moses died on a mountain all alone, and we're told that God buried him. Elijah went up to heaven in that fiery chariot. These were different. But from an African perspective, Moses and Elijah are most important because they're prominent Israelite leaders who delivered messages from God to his people. And that happens to be the kind of thing that ancestors do. Now let's continue with the story. The disciples were a little sleepy while Jesus was praying. But all of a sudden, they awoke with a start. Something obviously important was happening. They saw the glory of Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. And then they realized that they're leaving. Well, Peter wants to make this experience last. And you can understand why. They'd kind of missed out on part of it. They'd been sleeping. And they're like, oh, let's, let's, I, I want this to keep going. This is something amazing. So he blurts out what he thought was a great suggestion. Remember, he had been sleeping while Jesus was praying. So he says, Master, it's good being up here on the mountain. Like, no kidding. That's an understatement. It's good being up here on the mountain. And then he goes on, let's put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. That was not a good idea. And Luke makes that crystal clear with his little parenthesis in the text. He didn't know what he was saying. <laughs> and God will make that crystal clear in just a moment. And because this story, this story of glory becomes somewhat terrifying. Before Peter had even finished speaking, a cloud rolled in and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. I bet they were afraid. This would have been terrifying. Can you imagine how frightening this must have been for Peter, James, and John? You're in the presence of the Almighty God. You've just seen Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And now it's dark. You wake up and you see that this something, this new thing is happening. Jesus is talking about his departure, his exodus. You've suggested what you thought was a good idea, and now God is speaking. The climax of the story, a voice came from the clouds saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. We're used to thinking of mountaintop experiences as spiritual highs. Events that we want to share with everyone. The images that come to mind are glorious sunrises, soft breezes, friends, music, quiet times with God. But on this mountain, the subject is death, and the frightening presence of God reduces them to silence. So what is this story all about? What's the point? I'm convinced that this is one of these stories that we will never fully understand until we back up and spend some time in the previous verses. The story itself gives us that clue. Verse 28 begins with the words, about eight days after Jesus said this. Said what? What's the this? If we don't carefully consider what Jesus had said earlier, we're not going to get the story. 
So Luke 9.26 is the key to understanding, in my understanding at least, of this entire chapter. Jesus said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. This passage is all about pointing Jesus' disciples in the right direction, leading them to the right Lord. It's an in-your-face story that is intended to make two points. One, you need to know who Jesus is. And two, you need to decide whether you're going to follow him. Are you going to listen to him? When we examine the context of the story, we find it highlights three crucial elements of our faith. Identity, allegiance, and obedience. In our current culture, Jesus is still pretty popular. That is, if you view him as a good teacher, a great moral example, or a preacher of non-judgmental love. As long as Jesus helps them and doesn't challenge their lifestyle, many people feel that they're on good terms with him. In other words, a lot of people today like to project onto Jesus whatever identity it is that makes them feel most comfortable. With tolerance and inclusivity as our highest values, anything that suggests that Jesus is more than human and that his message requires exclusive devotion to him quickly becomes a major stumbling block. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus has asked his disciples the critical question of life. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, that outspoken one, immediately responded, you are the Christ of God. And what had led to his declaration? Perhaps it was watching Jesus raise a young girl from the dead or picking up leftover scraps after Jesus had fed the 5,000. Whatever the case, on this occasion, Peter got it right, even though he didn't really fully understand what he was saying. Have you ever had one of those experiences when you've asked someone a question and they've given you the right answer, but it's clear that they don't really know what they're talking about? Uh, trust me, your professors here at the college, they know all about this. <laughs> this was one of those times. And so Jesus went on to explain what it meant to be the Christ of God in verse 22 of Luke chapter 9. We read there, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. We can hardly imagine how devastating those words were to the disciples. Their high hopes for this Messiah figure were being dashed. Peter's confession of faith was seemingly nullified nullified by Jesus' blunt talk about suffering and death. In a way totally beyond the grasp of the, grasp of the disciples, Jesus, who was the glorious king of Israel, and yet he was speaking of his death. He would be killed. And he left them no doubt that being Messiah meant a cross. The Son of Man must suffer and he must be killed. This is the divine necessity within the, the, within the salvation plan. Now let's pause for a moment and ask ourselves, 
Who do we say Jesus is? For the crowds in Jesus' day, he was regarded as an Elijah figure, a messenger announcing the coming of a Messiah. And surely this accounts in part for his popularity, at the beginning at least. Everyone wanted to hear about the arrival of a Messiah, someone who would set them free from Roman oppression, fulfill their hope, every hope, and make their dreams come true. Many today want a Jesus who will fix their problems, make them happy, provide for their wants. Often people look for a Messiah to provide a perfect future. But to believe that the Messiah has already come has significant implications. As one commentator has put it, to believe the Messiah has come means that we can no longer shape him to fit our dreams. He shapes us to fit God's will. We don't get to shape him to fit our dreams. He shapes us to fit God's will. That's what Messiahs do, at least Jesus the Messiah. Who do you see, say that Jesus is? How we answer that question will determine our response to the next. Will we follow him? Will we listen? In the message paraphrase, Eugene Peterson, Eugene Peterson put it this way, then he told them what they could expect for themselves. Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me, and I will show you how. Jesus had shocked them with his declaration that he must suffer and die. Now he would get even more personal. They had to deny themselves and pick up their crosses. The disciples knew that when a man from one of their villages took up a cross and went off with a band of Roman soldiers, he was on a one-way journey. He would not be coming back. Taking up the cross meant the ultimate in self-denial. And a follower of King Jesus has died to a whole way of life. And this is not something, and you all know this, this is not something that we just do once and check off the list and we're all good. This is daily. Right? You get up in the morning. Am I going to deny myself or am I going to live for myself? Who's, who's king? These are the questions we ask. If Jesus really is the Christ of God, then he can call for ultimate allegiance. This is the King Jesus gospel, and it's a message that demands a response, complete conversion. You can't do it halfway. Lose your life so that you may gain true life. So how do you think those first disciples were feeling after hearing Jesus' challenge? This is the background for the transfiguration story. So let's go back to the story for a moment, and then I'm going to wrap things up today. After Peter's less-than-brilliant suggestion to build three shelters, the, crowd in, sorry, the cloud enveloped them. And then in verse 35, we read, A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen Listen to him. Why did God shut Peter up? It could be rhetorical, but I actually, I'm going to put it out here to you guys. Why did God shut Peter up? What was the, 
What was the thing that, that Peter said that was wrong? Who wants to give me an answer? Just shout it out. What's that? Just because he spoke. Just because he spoke that definitely, like, really, when you're in the presence of God, it's probably best to just keep quiet. Um, well, anybody else want to try back here? Yeah. Yeah, okay. This was his plan. Anybody else want to try? Back here. Well, it was good to be there, wasn't it? It's good, I, but good try. It's good. That, that's pretty key. And I, w- I want to suggest there's one other thing that actually I think is the most important thing. Peter was treating Jesus, Elijah, and Moses as though they were the same. They're equal. These guys are all important. They're all messengers from God. And the reason I say that I think that's the key issue is because Jesus talked about in the context, if anyone is ashamed of me, and my words. And then when we look at what God said, when it, that immediately uh, coming out of that cloud, this is my son. Now Moses and Elijah, now we're all, we get it, we're children of God, we put our faith in Jesus, but Jesus is different. We know that, right? We know the incarnation. We know that he's fully God and fully human. And God is making the point in this story, this is my son. You got to get his identity right. Who do you say that I am? And he's my chosen one, my beloved one. That's the next line that comes from God. And then he says, listen to him. Now, When I discussed this story with my African friends, we came to the conclusion that it doesn't matter if the dead can come back and speak with the living. Bible's really clear, by the way, in terms of telling us, don't try it. All right? That's sorcery and witchcraft, and we don't go there. We know that. But if, for some reason, someone from the dead was sent to speak to, it really doesn't matter. Why? Because who they are and what they say is insignificant in relation to Jesus and his words. They don't matter. Their message doesn't matter. We respect the dead, but we don't follow them. We don't worship them. And that was the point of this story for these folks. Peter had placed Moses and Elijah on equal footing with Jesus. That's a bad move. But the voice of God says, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. So here are the lessons for today. First, get the identity right. Jesus is the son of God. We worship him and we worship him alone. Second, listen to him because his message is the only one that matters. So how does the story end? And I think it's actually really interesting. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. It's making the point, just the, the backing up the words that God has just said. Moses and Elijah, key people, we can learn tons from them. We, we read their words. We use the Holy, the Holy Spirit uses those words to speak into our lives. But they don't, they don't match up to Jesus. They found that Jesus was alone. Nobody else, no other message. Peter, who always had something to say, 
kept it to himself and told nobody what he had seen until much later when he wrote his second epistle. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, he writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. Peter still had lots to learn after that Mount of Transfiguration, but clearly... His mind had been impacted, his heart, his soul, his life. He had met God. It's an amazing story to look at, and I think it focuses our attention on where our worship should be. Earlier today in chapel, we sang, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after thee. This is, this is the God we serve, the Lord we serve. So discipleship starts and ends with Jesus. And I want to leave these final two questions with you today. Who do you say Jesus is? And two, will you follow him? These are the most important questions that we will ever need to answer. I was sharing at breakfast today with a few of the students here that um, my first year of Bible school was in a little school down in Texas. And uh, I went down, I had grown up in a, in a very strong Christian family, um, but it was a pretty rebellious teenager. I, I have often kind of said to people, I had three great loves in high school. Uh, they were um, basketball, fast cars, and, and girls, and the girls were a distant third, actually. But anyway, that, that's where I was at when I went to Bible school. But when I went down there, some incredibly important things happened. First and foremost, I finally, it finally clicked. The Holy Spirit got the message through to me that it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. I had this idea that Christianity was do's and don'ts. And I tended to gravitate towards the don'ts. But when I, when I recognized that actually Christ lives in us and it's in a relationship that we have with God, that is His Holy Spirit that changes our wants and desires and gives us the power to do what He wants us to do, that fundamentally changed my life. And I, I look at that, these were the questions that I had to wrestle with during, my, during that year as I look back at it. Who do I say Jesus is? Will I follow him? Yet those two questions, you answer those two questions right. And I will say to you, you will are on the path of life and hope. It doesn't mean life is going to be easy. I've had lots of challenges through my life and all of these kind of things that have come up. But I know that I'm going in the direction that God wants me to go. So let me conclude today with a visual reminder to keep Jesus front and center in our lives. The last few years for me personally have held a number of challenges, but I'm very grateful to God for the way that he had prepared me ahead of time for those challenges. 
Because some years ago, a good friend of mine who had gone through his own set of difficulties, he provided a gift to me in the form of a symbol. During a period of great upheaval in his life, he had a dream, had a vision of a compass. And on this compass, the N had been scratched out and replaced with a J. And when he woke up, he thought, you know what? I'm going to get myself a compass, and I'm going to do exactly that. And so he's got this compass, and he's scratched out the end, and he's got this J on it, and he carries that compass all the time. And he does this to remind himself to set his course on Jesus. And he also uh, designed a graphic, and you can see it on the PowerPoint behind me, or on the screen behind me, um, that he could share with others. And so when he shared this with me a few years ago, I thought, you know what? I really like that too. I I need reminders. I need things that I can see that keep me focused where I need to be going. So I printed this off and I put it up in my office and and I keep it every day. I take a look at that. That's a little drawing that way. I had this graphic that I have in my office. Are my eyes set on Jesus? the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, our risen Lord, our glorious Lord, the one who is the Son of God. I hope and pray that you all are having an amazing experience here at Prairie. I hope that in the classroom you're learning tons, that you are being challenged to grow spiritually, mentally, relationally, socially, all of these areas that you are growing. I pray that you are enjoying your time playing sports and music and making awesome friends. But mostly, I pray that you are growing to know Jesus and that you are growing in your life of discipleship, of your following of Christ. Amen? I'm going to... um, pronounce a benediction, and uh, I, because I was talking lots about Botswana today and what I learned during my time there, I'm going to say it first in Setswana, and then I'll give it to you in English, and it's from the end of 2 Corinthians. So, I say, hohatsu ya morena le moluki warone jesu kerasete, le lorato la mudimo rara, le kopalano ya moyo boitseipo, inna le lona, pompieno le kaposakutlein. So, in English, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you today and forevermore. Amen.